Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. Well, today, Pastor Jason picks up where he left off last week, talking about Stephen, the first martyr, and this is part two in this series, in a sermon he's entitled, The Challenge. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Today, Jason's looking at verses 1 through 53. Here's Jason. We are making our way through the book of Acts, and you can turn to Acts chapter 7, and as you turn there, I want to pose a question. And maybe this question will mean something to you. This means a lot to me because I've done this several times. Have you ever gotten on the freeway, gotten off the freeway to do something, but then when you get back on the freeway, somehow you get turned around backwards and you're actually heading back the direction you just came from when you think you're continuing on? Maybe it's just me and our family vacations. (laughs) But but at times, we've actually... or Okay, I've done that. I can't blame this on my wife. And, 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 I'll, and I'll be heading back the direction I just came from, but I have no idea about it. Maybe because it's dark, maybe because I'm on the 15 and it looks no different, what side you're on, or, or what. And the reality is, we, we've probably all done that at some point, and, and, and you find yourself on the wrong side, going the wrong direction, and, and you don't even know it. And when, when you're on a family vacation, that, that might be a, a bit of an annoyance. It might cost you an extra 15 minutes on your on your trip or maybe an hour depending on how long it is until you can actually flip around and go the right direction on on the freeway. But think about how significant it is if you are on the wrong side of God. And that is what we're going to see today. And in, in a sermon that that I've entitled it and, and I, I struggled with what to actually title this sermon. And I, I came with some help the first martyr part two, the challenge, because that is indeed what Stephen is doing. He is bringing a challenge to those that are on the wrong side of God. And that is what he does. He brings this challenge to them, hopefully to bring them back over to God's side, to the side that he is on. And he does this by challenging them on basically on three fronts. And you'll see this in your bulletin. First, he challenges them from their own history as he gives them a retelling. And then he challenges them in a rebuke. That as their fathers rejected God and the servants that God sent to them, so now they are rejecting God. That, that is the rebuke. And then finally, we'll, we'll see the third front, which is the reminder. And that is that the God of glory has appeared and that there is still time, there is still an opportunity for them to turn back to God, to get on God's side. But you'll notice in your notes that, that actually I don't have any verses labeled as to these three points. And, and the reason for that is because they're contained in all the verses. And, and, and last week when, when I got home, my, my family started asking me, Dad, how are you going to teach through the sermon of, of Stephen? Are you going to spend five weeks going through just the sermon of Stephen and I? And I said, no, actually, I was thinking about teaching the whole thing at one shot. And they said, you will never be able to do that. 
and, and praise the Lord, I've made it through one service, so I, I know that I, I think I can. <laughs> but I, I think what I'd like to say is what we're going to do today, the way we're going to look at God's Word is, is very close to what, what we'd see a metal detector at the beach doing. A guy using a metal detector or, or a gal. No doubt we've all seen this. He's got his little deet, 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 and, he, and he's going around and when he, when he finds some metal, what does he do? First, he kind of cleans everything up because he doesn't care about the twigs. He doesn't care about the bottle cap. He wants to find something worth something, right? And so then he goes a second time and figures out how deep it is. And then the third time, what is he doing? He, get, he gets out some sort of digging tool and he, and he digs and that's what we're going to do with God's Word today. The retelling, we're going to look at it from a broad stroke perspective. From kind of far back, looking at the history, the retelling for what it is. And I'll add little tidbits in just to, to make it a little bit clear. Then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the rebuke. And then we're going to come back a third time. And so, yes, I need the Lord's help this morning. So, so let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the very words of Stephen's sermon. The sermon that, that instead of causing 5,000 men to, to repent and turn to you, it, it was a sermon that, that caused the, the leaders to turn on him and stone him. We know that your word is good. We know that you are good. And we know that your word is complete truth. Use your word to perform heart surgery on us this morning. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So turn with me to to Acts chapter 7. And we're going to look at this, the retelling first of Abraham. Look at the very first verse. The high priest, who, who no doubt is Caiaphas, who we've heard about already in, in the book of Acts. The high priest said, are these things so? So we know from last week what had happened was that, that they had made allegations, accusations, charges towards Stephen. The three charges were that you're against God, you're, you're against Moses and the law, you're against the temple. And so, so now, what does the high priest, what does Caiaphas say? He said, so what do you have to say for yourself, Stephen? And yet, as we look at Stephen's response, he doesn't defend himself. You you can scour this text and you're not going to see the personal pronoun I. You're not going to see the the idea of my. Anywhere in in this text, what he's going to do is he's going to take them back to the word, back to the history of the nation of Israel. Because he's not about defending himself. He's about defending Christ. He's about preaching the gospel. And that is exactly what he does. And he does this by taking them back to their own history. Not to teach them about these men, because they already knew about these men much better than you and I do. They they knew intricately everything about Abraham, about Joseph, about Moses. Now what he's doing is he, he wants to teach them about the things that they did not understand. One, that the Jewish people have a habit of rejecting those that God sends to them. And that God never confines himself to one place. And that's what we're going to see. And so look at how Stephen responds. Verse 2. And he said, 
Hear me, brethren and fathers. He identifies them with them right away. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So even before he comes to Haran with his dad, it's, the text says that God actually appeared to Abraham back in Mesopotamia. And what did God say? And, and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So first he is dealing with the calling of Abraham. That God reached out to Abraham. That God called Abraham. And then what happens? Then he left the land of the Chaldeans, Abraham did, and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. So God takes him from Mesopotamia to Haran, finally to Canaan, finally to the promised land. But he gave him no inheritance in it and not even a a foot of ground. And yet, when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. So even though God gave him Canaan, gave him the promised land, Abraham actually didn't take possession of that. He didn't gain any of that land as his own. But God promised him that he would someday, through his descendants, gain the possession of the land, which we know is exactly what happens. Look at verse 6. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Even though Stephen doesn't quote too many Bible verses referring to the Old Testament text, his whole sermon is deeply based in God's word. And here he's actually pointing back to, to Genesis 15. And the prophecy, the prophetic utterance that God makes that one day for 400 years, the nation of Israel will be held in bondage. And we know where they are held in bondage is in Egypt. Again, kind of forcing the focus ahead to what he's going to spend all of his time, who he's going to spend all of his time talking about, which is Moses. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. So what is the reason that God wants to take them from Egypt to Canaan? For them to serve and worship him. And we see that it's not going to be a bed of roses as they're, they're already told that, yes, for 400 years you're going to be in slavery. Verse 8, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So we start with the calling. He also gives him, he also states the promise, the Abrahamic covenant that God had made with Abraham concerning the land. And then we see this, the covenant of circumcision. These are all things that his listeners, the Sanhedrin, would applaud him for. They would give him a thumbs up and they would say, yes, we know all of these things. Yes, that is true. That is our father Abraham. And yet he doesn't stop with Abraham, does he? As he goes on and he, and he does the retelling of Joseph, taking the, the narrative, okay, from Abraham now to, to who? To Joseph, the patriarchs. Isn't that interesting? The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. Do you know who those patriarchs are? They're his brothers. And if we were looking at the book of Genesis, it wouldn't say, it wouldn't call them the patriarchs. It would say his brothers became jealous of him. And they sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor 
and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. And, and, and then he stops. Then he stops with the Joseph account. And, and what's significant about Joseph is that he then becomes the deliverer for the nation of Israel. And in his deliverance, he takes them from Canaan, really from the promised land to Egypt. And really what all that is, is a, a step into who he wants to talk about. Who Stephen really is going to focus on now is, as we, we see only seven verses are used to, to talk about Abraham. Seven verses are used to, to talk about Joseph. But now when he comes to Moses, he uses 26 verses to talk about Moses. Why? Because Moses was a key figure for the Israelites, particularly for this group that he is speaking to. So let's see what he has to say in the, in the retelling of, of Moses. But as the time of the promise was approaching, what promise? The promise that he says now from, that he had given to Abraham, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. So all the good things that Joseph had done, not only for his own nation, but for the nation of Egypt, a new king rises up and he, and he knows nothing of that and forgets about the blessing that the Israelites had been to the Egyptians. And it was he, verse 19, who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It, it was their terrible custom at, at this time that carried all the way to the time where where now Stephen is living in, that they continue to do some of this, where for overpopulation reasons, in order to keep slaves that, that were possibly becoming too populated, they would then go ahead and start some sort of law and say, okay, all of the firstborn sons, you need to carry them out to such and such and just leave them. And even when it wasn't a law, if, if, if someone had some children that, that they just felt like, well, we, we have too many, well, then they would do this. They would abandon them. And we see it was at this time. Look at verse 20. It's such a terrible time in history. That Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. You can see from the beginning that, that Stephen is, is not against Moses. Stephen loves Moses. Even the way that he's depicting Moses. You can see that God was already orchestrating things within Moses' life to use him. And after he had been set aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. 
Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and, and he was a man of power and words and deeds and, and the Lord uses this to allow him to, to pen the first five books of the Old Testament. And God uses this as well in, in the future for him to be the leader that he ends up becoming. But look at what it says in 23. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren the sons of Israel. It was the Jewish custom that whenever they talk about Moses, they take his life and they separate it into three different chunks. Three different groupings of 40 years. And so that's what we're going to see and we're going to see that throughout this text. And the first 40 years are talking about Moses' time in Egypt. And towards the end of that time, look at verse 24. After he gets this in his mind to visit his brethren, this is what he sees. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. You're following what, 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 Joseph, what, what Moses' thought pattern is. He recognizes, oh, I think God has actually called me to, called me to be the deliverer. To help my people. He's raised me in Egypt for this purpose. And so now when he actually comes to the place where he's ready to do something. He does something and he thinks at that point. Everybody in Israel is going to pick him up. Put them over their, over their shoulders and say yes our deliverer has arrived. He's going to be the one that rides off with us on a white horse. And yet the reality is when this happens. They don't get it. But they did not understand. And it gets worse. 26. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? Didn't make any sense to him. But the one who was injuring his neighbors pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to take to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And so that marks the next 40-year period that, that we see of Moses, that instead of accepting him as their deliverer at that point, they don't want anything to do with Moses. He fears what... Egypt is now going to do to him because he killed an Egyptian, so he floods. But again, this is all part of God's plan. And he sends him to Midian. And there for 40 years, he is in Midian. And then at the end of that time, just as at the end of his time in Egypt, he comes up with this plan. Well, now he stumbles upon this burning thorn bush that isn't burning completely. And that's because the Lord is going to meet him there, right? Look at 31. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. Isn't that interesting where so many people talk about having this out-of-body experience and seeing God and they walk into the light and everything just gets peaceful and nice. When we see Scripture, when somebody comes face-to-face with God, you know what their response is? Fear. 
Moses' response is not just fear. It's fear to such an extent that he didn't even want to look at God. But God in His grace, look at 33. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. God's grace, this is all part of God's plan, raising and training Moses so that he might lead the nation of Israel. And then it goes on. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Again, we know this isn't an angel. This is the angel of the Lord. This is the Lord. And what did this man do? This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, this is the, the third part of Moses' life, the end section of Moses' life. As we see, the first 40 years were in Egypt. The second 40 years are in Midian. And now the, the last 40 years that he spends, he spends with the nation of Israel, leading them through the wilderness. But not just that. Moses is pointing them to someone. Look at verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles speaking of the law to pass on to you, to let us know that Stephen isn't against the law just as he's not against the temple. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, speaking of Moses, but repudiated him. And in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, which is the god of the Ammonites, and the stars of the god of Rampha, which is the Babylonian name for Saturn, the planet that they worshipped. The images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. And then to let them know that he was all about the temple, he goes further back than the temple and takes them to the beginning, the tabernacle. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. So then he goes and he, and he talks about the tabernacle. And he lets them know that this was really the portable temple, right? And it starts off with them, with Moses in the wilderness, but it goes beyond that. And, and when the, the, pantal of, the mantle of leadership is, is handed down to, to Joshua, he then takes 
this tabernacle, everywhere that where they are taken. And he sets up the tabernacle in, in Shiloh. And then as continues to go on in history and, 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 and he's not making a whole lot of time spent on David and, and Solomon. Why? Because really what he wants to solo in on is the temple. As he says, a time comes when David is around where David says, why, why should I live in such a nice house when, when, when the house of God is this tent? Look at verse 46. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So David couldn't build the temple. So it was Solomon that did that. However, the Most High, and this is his point, does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose, for my resting? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And then it seems he's drawing to the close of his sermon, which he never really finishes, which we'll see next week. And he says this, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Stephen does not desire to merely just give a history. He's not just retelling a story for no purpose but just to randomly throw out facts. His desire is to challenge them. To challenge them in their understanding and their beliefs, their practice regarding God, regarding the temple, and regarding the law. It may not be easy to see. You, you may think, oh, the only rebuke, Pastor Jason, is those last three verses. But, but the rebuke has been throughout this whole sermon. As he's been retelling history, he's also been giving them quite a bit of rebuke. It's just not as hard to, not as easy to see. So, so let's look at this, the rebuke. The rejection of God and his servants. And that is what we are going to see. Turn back with me to, to verses two and three, the beginning of chapter seven. Where it says, and he said, speaking of Stephen, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Stephen starts off explaining clearly that the God of glory appeared to Abraham when he was where? When he was in Gentile land. When he was not in the promised land, when he was not in Canaan. In fact, it's not even that he was in Haran. It goes further back than that. That God literally appeared to him when he was in Mesopotamia. Letting him know that, that God does not reside only in the temple, which is what the Jews believed. That was 
their main theology. When it came to where God resided, they believed, oh, he, he resides in the temple and that's the only place where he resides. No, that is not the only place where he resides. And that is exactly where Stephen starts off. He lets them know long before the temple was even around. God reveals himself to Abraham. God's focus is not limited to to one geographical place or location. God's focus is on the whole world. And that's what he was wanting to use the nation of Israel for, to reach the whole world. But they had become so tunnel-visioned, not only in their perspective of reaching out, but, but in who they were and who their God is, that God only resides in the temple. And I believe that, that Stephen, as we see his perspective on the temple, even of the law, that that he was a, a step away from, from Peter and his understanding of just how important the temple was and that he recognized, no, God's plan is to go out into all the world. And that's why he's the transition in this book from Peter to Paul because that is what Stephen is doing here. Stephen is letting them know, no, God's perspective is larger than this. It's larger than the temple. God is calling us out to the world. And that's what we're going to see. As I believe Paul, known as Saul at this time, was here listening to this. Perhaps this is what God uses as the motivation for Paul, who then lights the world on fire and takes the gospel to so many places. And we see the beginning of world missions. But we, we also see in, look in verse 4, then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. So it wasn't just that he, that God was only with him in Mesopotamia. No, God was with him when he went to Haran too. And then God was continuing to be with him when he came to Canaan, when he came to the promised land. But then look at verses 9 and 10. As up to this point, no doubt they were following him, but now this is, this is when the rebuke gets stronger and stronger. Dealing with Joseph. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from his afflictions. And granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. So we see here that the brothers of Joseph, who represent the leaders of the nation, the foundation stones of the nation, that they do what? They reject God's man. They reject Joseph. And they just want to keep rejecting him. And what we see is that they are on the wrong side of God. And, and that is what Stephen keeps pointing them to. And yet even with, with Joseph, we see this idea that God is not confined to being just in the land of Israel. Because Joseph is in Egypt and yet God is with him. And God is blessing him in all that he does. In fact, God is setting him up to save the nation, to help the nation in this time of need. And so that then is another rebuke towards the nation of Israel. In particular, he's now telling them, don't you get it? Just as our fathers rejected Joseph, you have rejected Jesus. That you are doing the very same thing.
But look at verses 24 and 29 and let's see if Moses is any different. And actually what we see is Moses is, isn't rejected just once or even just twice, but three times by the nation. Look at 24. And when he saw one of them, talking about Moses, being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brother, brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pulled him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. So so we see that the one who God had chosen to be the deliverer was the one who was rejected. And that is the stern rebuke that he is then giving them to let them know, okay, yes, even when it comes to Moses, think about our forefathers and the way that they treated Moses. Does it remind you of the way that you have treated anyone? That is the conclusion he's trying to draw them to. But look at verse 35. We, we see another place where they continue to disown him. This Moses whom they disowned, that they rejected Moses saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Again, the words that he uses are significant. Of all the words he uses, deliverer. That speaks of Jesus. That speaks of the fact that they are the ones who have rejected the true deliverer, the Messiah. And Jesus is is prefigured in the Exodus as Moses was used by the Lord to lead the nation of Israel from Egypt out of captivity. Jesus has come to lead those that would trust in him out of the captivity of sin, out of the bondage of sin into life. And look at, Verses 39 and 40, as we see another time. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, but repudiated him. They rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Look at 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. The works of their hands. That word rejoicing is the word to worship. They were worshiping this calf. This calf that, and it's interesting, it says that they made with their own hands. Who had they rejected? They had rejected the leader that God had sent them, Moses. They didn't want even Aaron to be their leader. They wanted this golden calf to be their leader. That they could then worship. And yet, even though they reject Moses, God doesn't reject Moses. He actually turns from them. And think about this as well. As the Israelites were worshiping this false god, where was Moses? He was literally on the mount 
receiving from God an image of what the real place of worship looked like. How he was supposed to construct the tabernacle. While they were worshiping this false god, he was up on the mountain getting a fresh perspective on what this place would look like that they were to worship the one true living God. In fact, it goes even deeper if if we think about the tabernacle and what was inside the tabernacle that they took with them everywhere they went. There was the, the pot of manna, there was Aaron's rod, and then there were what? The two stone tablets, the law. And so we see in this that Moses, he was in favor of the law. And in favor of the temple. Look at the the last verses, 51 to 53. For the final rebuke. And there are more in these verses, but but this one's significant. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Notice the pronoun that he uses. It's different than what he's been using all along in his sermon. Look at verse 44. What does he say? Our fathers. He's identifying himself with them. When he gets to this point, he now separates himself and lets them know it's your fathers. Why? Because you are on the wrong side. You are not on God's side. I am with Moses. I am with Joseph. We are on God's side. You are not. And then he goes on, which of the one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you do, did not keep it. You would think with this that, that such a scathing rebuke, that that's all that this is about is, is, is rebuke. And yet as, as we look, we, we see that God's grace and the glory of God is, is seen evident throughout his sermon as well. And, and I will close with, with these thoughts. As the reminder of the God of glory being with them continually. Turn back with me again to verse 2. As we look at this a final time. And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. How does he picture God? He says, the God of glory. And he doesn't say spoke to father Abraham, which, and, and I would encourage you to do this. Go back and look at the account in Genesis of how God approached Abraham. It says he speaks to him. But here, We see that even before he speaks to Abraham in Haran, that he comes and he gives him a vision. He appears to Abraham in his grace. Why? Because God is a God who communicates. Because God is a God who seeks his children out. That the God of glory chose to reveal himself to Abraham. And really what he's saying is that he is continuing to reveal himself to you through me, his servant. That's what Stephen's saying, just as he revealed himself already to you through his servant, Jesus, whom you crucified. That's the implication of what he is saying with this. 
Then look at verses 3 and 4 as we continue to see God at work. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So God will do the showing. God is the one that calls him. God is the one that approaches him. God is the one that speaks. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. God is the active one. This should be an encouragement to those that are listening to him. And yet, look at what it also says. The very end of verse 4, God had to move to this country in which you are now living. Even though Abraham wasn't able to possess any of that land and call it his, you, who I'm speaking to, this is your land. But what you've done is you've turned it into an idol. You've turned the temple into an idol. Something that it is not. And you've made this too important to you. Too valuable. They're too comfortable and too connected with their land. They were too much at home in their land when they were supposed to be thinking of themselves as sojourners and not permanent settlers. And I believe that is a message to you and I, is it not? That is the way we are to look at our life here on this earth, that we are sojourners. Look at verses 12 and 14. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, talking about Joseph, he said... Our fathers there the first time to Egypt. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. So God graciously chose for the salvation of the Jewish people to come from who? From the one whom they had rejected. That his very brothers had rejected, left for dead. And this no doubt points to Christ, who was rejected by his own people as well. Stephen's point is clear, which really is an act of God's grace and the God of glory, patiently calling to them and God saying this, you people have a habit of rejecting the very saviors I send to you. Why don't you wake up, stop rejecting the saviors I'm sending to you and repent? Perhaps even this delineation between the first and second visits of Joseph's brother is is a plea to the hearers of Stephen's sermon that they likewise had missed the coming of the Messiah with the first visit speaking of jesus and now the second visit could possibly be speaking of stephen and the message of christ that he was boldly proclaiming in their presence letting them know this is your second shot you can repent now and then he goes on in in, in 35 this moses whom they disown saying who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. He's saying, you've rejected Jesus who was like Moses and yet Jesus is the true deliverer. As our people denied that Moses had any right to be their ruler, to be their judge, to be their deliverer, so you have rejected Jesus as your rightful ruler, your rightful judge. In essence, what is he saying? He's implying repent, recognize this. Let me finish with the last several verses. Look at verses 51 to 53. We're going to go all the way down to 55 to, to bring in something that's so significant. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised, and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. No doubt I believe Stephen thought he was going to keep going. Maybe he just stopped and did a dramatic pause, but it was enough time for everybody to turn on him. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen starts his sermon off with the glory of God and he finishes his life with seeing the glory of God. Why is that? Because Stephen was on the right side of God. Perhaps some of you this morning are, are, are not on the right side of God. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You don't understand why Jesus came. Well, He came to be the perfect sacrifice. To do what you and I could not do. And that if we would trust in Him to pay for our sins, that we, we would repent and turn to Him, then He would grant us eternal life and thereby bring us to God's side. Or perhaps some of us are, are believers in Jesus Christ. We have trusted in Him. And there is something in our lives that God is, is, is trying to deal with us on. But instead of listening to Him and not being in, humble in heart, we're, we're being proud just as these men that are called the uncircumcised in, in heart and ears, speaking of the fact that they put all of their emphasis on the external, saying it's because of the circumcision that we are identified as, as God's chosen people. And, and they paraded that around like a badge. And yet in their hearts, they were proud. And what they needed to have was circumcised hearts, changed hearts. And perhaps some of us need a changed heart this morning. Areas of sin that God is dealing with us in. Let me close with, with two points to ponder. Consider how the Jews that Stephen was preaching to had made the temple into their own idol. Made it into something that it was not. How does your view of church and the church building we gather in on Sundays, this building, how does that, that affect your view of God? Do you live each day of the week recognizing that God is with you wherever you are just as much as He is with you on Sunday mornings? Because He is. Number two, consider how the Jews were continually on the wrong side of what God was doing by rejecting the men he sent to help them. How could you be on the wrong side of something God might be doing? Ask the Lord to reveal to you those areas where you might be standing on the wrong side of what he is doing. Let me close our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sermon of Stephen's that we can glean so much from it and have a fresh perspective, Lord. We desire to be on your side. Help us, for we need your help. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. 
Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.